0: you have your Bibles this morning, take them and turn with me to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, as we begin our second of many sermons through this wonderful Gospel. And I want to go ahead, and as you are jumping in, I want to go ahead and just begin reading as soon as you get it. My hope and my prayer is, is that you will see the providence of God in the... uh, in the service this morning we see baptism already this morning and we see the celebration of one who has served in the local church for many years and as you'll see that that plays a part into the sermon today and that is all by the hand of God on that so if you will look Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 5 we're just going to read verses 5 through 10. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. And now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order, of his division according to the custom of the priest um, the priestly office he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the lord and burn incense and the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering may god bless the reading and the preaching of his word as we begin this wonderful gospel and we looked at this last week that luke is a historian luke is he's more than just a physician he, he plays the role of historian in his writing out this gospel and he's not an eyewitness of what is taking place matthew john or eyewitnesses mark is not an eyewitness but peter is and so mark and peter connected and so mark copies and writes out what peter has told him but Luke is the one who is not an eyewitness when it comes to the four narratives of, that we have concerning Jesus and his life. But what we do get with this great historian, Luke, is, is that Luke is the guy who checks the facts. Luke is the fact checker. He's the guy who goes back and goes and meets with all the eyewitnesses, and he work, writes all this stuff down. So we know that Matthew, Mark, and John are telling the truth. Luke is the guy who did that. And so Luke begins now the narrative. He gave us the prologue in verses 1 through 4, and we kind of got an introduction last week, but now he begins the narrative, and he begins the narrative with this phrase, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Charles Dickens wrote um, a novel called The Tale of Two Cities. And there in the very opening line, a line that has become iconic, I think kind of, gives us a little bit of understanding of what Luke is doing here. You may have heard the line before, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. You see, Dickens is writing this, and and if you continue to read, he's wanting to portray the complicated times of which his novel is about. The times that the people were living in. Similarly, Luke captures the surrounding hardships with this phrase, not only the historical context, but... The, the society and the culture that Jesus is brought into. And so he gives us all of this as a wonderful, as a great historian that he is. And as we can tell in just a moment, you will see that it is a dark day in Israel. It is a dark day. But we know that it is in the darkest days where the sun shines the brightest. And so here, as sunlight begins to break forth, the light of its rays falls upon a priest and his wife, a very humble and lowly priest and his wife, the soon-to-be John, the, the parents of John the Baptist. And not only that, eyewitnesses to all that God is accomplishing. Don't forget what he said there in, chapter, in verse 1. He's writing an account of all the things that God has accomplished, that God has fulfilled. And they are eyewitnesses. So he begins with two eyewitnesses on what's taking place. But there is something more here. And as I read through this several weeks ago, I knew exactly the direction that I I believe that we need to go with this. Because as we look at this, what we find this morning in the title of the sermon is, this is a testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is the parents of John the Baptist. This is a testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And I want you to see that we will discover from these verses, looking at what a Christian life looks like, no matter the times that we live. I want to do a couple things here. First, I want to look at the times. Then secondly, I want to look at the three aspects of their testimony. So we'll look at the times and the testimony. And as we look at the testimony, you'll see a testimony of saving faith, a testimony of daily obedience, and then you will see a testimony of religious service. So let's begin this morning with the times. As we consider the time frame surrounding the coming of Jesus, we discover, as I said, that this is really kind of the worst of times. This is not a very good time. You know, some people may actually say, well, actually, this would have been the best time because this is where we need a Savior the most. The, the times they were living in were really bad times, and this is where we need a Savior to come in and reign as king. And so let me give you a few factors concerning what we can gain from this phrase that in the the days of Herod, king of Judea. First, you need to know that this was a time of waiting. They were waiting. What do you mean by that, Brother Brian? Well, the last time that God had spoken to his people was back in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And what quite interesting was the promise of John the Baptist. It's amazing what Luke does. He connects the last time God spoke with the coming of the fulfillment of that promise. Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, to the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Brothers and sisters, this was 400 years ago. Can you imagine? You can, can't you? Because it's been 2,000 years since Jesus Christ has come and we are waiting on the fulfillment of when he comes back. But here you have 400 years and there's nothing. God promised the Messiah and Malachi, but then he also promised at the very end the forerunner, the messenger who would come before the Messiah, which was John the Baptist who came in the power of Elijah. So this is a time of waiting where the people are waiting. And you and I know very well that we are not good at waiting mcdonald's is not fast enough right 400 years of waiting can really wear on a people who are looking for a messiah but not only that this is also a time of tyrants we read of king herod and brothers and sisters he was a horrible horrible man a horrible individual you see, this does give us historical context of when this all begins to take place because we know that Herod ruled between 40 B.C. and 4 B.C. And every good thing that he did was politically motivated. Now, we know that, right? It's interesting that most of the things that people do in the government always seem to have an individual political motivation for themselves. But this is Herod. Everything he did was that was, could be said that was good for the Jews was a political motivation of his own. But at the end of the day, he was an evil tyrant. He was a man who was paranoid about his power and rule to the point that he killed one of his ten or nine wives. He had nine or ten wives. A we'll little dispute there. Either way, he killed one of the wives. He killed her brother, her mother, and several of their children because he wanted no one to take his power. And if we say, well, that's extremely evil, yes, it is, but it was not his worst crime because we know that when Christ comes on the scene, he will kill many more children to stay on his throne. He was an evil tyrant, but he was only a puppet because there was one behind him that was far greater of a tyrant by the name of Caesar who believed that he himself was God and he ruled with an iron fist. This was an age of tyrants, but it was also a time of religious compromise. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus, of Jesus' day had long since compromised their own religion. No longer was salvation and redemption through, through faith in the Messiah that was to come. No, they had twisted the word of God, and the laws of God, into a, works, a salvation by works. They had made it into legalism, not to mention that Herod and Caesar both had also built pagan temples in which many people would go and be a part of. It was a time of great affliction. And Luke zooms in on the affliction of Elizabeth and Zechariah and the fact that they are barren. They experience great emotional and spiritual affliction. You say spiritual? Well, spiritual because if you did not have children, which is one of the greatest blessings an individual can have in the eyes of God, they would see it as though if you were barren, it was because you were cursed by God. And so they had no children. And you can tell, we know, we can hint that this was something that weighed upon them. Their barrenness brought great anguish and affliction. But as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, what we find is is that J.C. Ryle is very much correct. He says, The grace of God exempts no one from trouble. Righteous as this holy priest and his wife were, they had a crook in their lot. They had a crook in their lot. You see, many in this day would feel the crook of anguish and affliction and pain. We will come across men and women who were demon-possessed. We're going to come across people who were lame from birth, blind individuals, people with leprosy and contagious diseases, and all sorts of things, and every one of these things bringing forth pain and anguish, not to mention having to live under the thumb of a tyrant. Beloved, this is the times in which Christ, Zechariah, Elizabeth lived in. A culture surrounded in trials and hardship. But I would dare say that if you would just take a moment with me, then you would begin to realize that we ourselves are not so different, are we? Have we ourselves not been waiting or we are not in a time of waiting in which Jesus will come back and we have been waiting for 2,000 years from since Jesus came and died and rose in the grave and then ascended and we're waiting for him to come back and all the while we're looking at all the things going around the world and we're just like Lord I am waiting for you to come back and yet every day we get closer to the grave. We're closer to the grave and it seems we're closer to the grave than we are him coming back. Are we not in our own day seeing the rise of tyrants? Rise of individuals and governments that are forcing people to do things that go against their conscience. And by the way, not even against the conscience of men, but we are seeing governments today that are forcing people to go against not the mandates of governments, but the mandate of God to worship God. In Australia, COVID camps where people are taken out of their homes and put into concentration camps, COVID camps. In Canada... Where pastors, just this past week, had to go stand before the magistrates, fearful that they were going to be thrown into prison because they had worship during the last year. Are we not seeing the rise of tyrants and the rise of government beginning to force its will upon its people? And you would say, well, yeah, Brother Brian, but not in America. Really? There were churches who were fined and shut down over the last couple of years. But let me ask you this. When was the last time that we ever saw a sitting president stand before the people and tell businesses and news outlets and Twitter and Facebook these types of information to stop, stop allowing information out there. Censor the information. Brothers and sisters, that is called censoring free speech. And our president did that just a few weeks ago. We are living in an age of tyrants. We are living in an age of religious compromise. The largest evangelical Protestant religion. Organization in the world. The Southern Baptist Convention. Has become woke. And it's filled with, with pragmatism. And, and salvation by works. It, it's been compromised. But it is compromised now. With this social justice junk that is running through it. To where just. This week, a man who I used to listen to and read and would told you had to go read, who has now not only embraced black liberation theology and wokeness, but has also said this past week that women can be pastors. And we in the SBC who stand up and say, that, that's wrong, have been told to shut up. Or a professor, a, a, a visiting professor, a man that has been fighting the fight all these years, who went on Twitter and said... Go and listen to this beautiful sermon by my homosexual son. He was about to be hired as as a visiting preaching professor for Southeastern Seminary. Or how about affliction and anguish? Do we not experience the loss of loved ones ourselves? Have we not experienced the loss of financial, the financial difficulties, loss of jobs? How many people are losing their jobs right now? Rising immorality right now, the fear of becoming sick and dying, or the reality that we do get sick and die. Wept at my table this week because of a young girl that I knew who has three children. Her and another girl, they, 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 I think they're like not even thirty. But I knew them through church and through ministry and all these things. And they have three, they, they, each one of them have three beautiful children. And both of their husbands were killed this past month. Not by COVID, because of a car accident. There has been anguish and pain and suffering long before COVID ever came into our lives, brothers and sisters. And so we are living in a time, we have always lived in a time Much like Zechariah, much like Elizabeth, much like Jesus, much like John the Baptist, where there have been trials and difficulties. We've always lived in these times. But the question that needs to be answered, the question that you have to answer, and the question I have to answer, the question that every man and woman of God has to answer, is how will we live in these times? And Luke shines the light upon the most humble and modest of people. That if not for God's providential work in their lives, you would have never known them. And he gives us a testimony. A testimony that shines bright in the darkest of days. I want you to see their testimony this morning. Of how they lived in these times. Notice first in verse 6 that it was a testimony of saving faith. They were both righteous in the sight of God. Luke tells us they were righteous. Now please know that he said they were righteous in the sight of God, not in the sight of their own eyes. They were not people who went around and who said, I am righteous because I did this, this, and this. They were not people who were righteous in the eyes of men, where other people were like, well, they're good people because they do this, this, and this, or they don't do this. They were not righteous because of a religious system that they participated in. They weren't righteous because the Pharisees said, you're righteous because you do what we say, or because you serve, or you're, in the, or, or, or you're a priest. It is important to note, brothers and sisters, why they are righteous and as we walk through Luke, Jesus is going to rebuke that kind of righteousness. Where you're righteous in your own eyes, or you're righteous in the eyes of men, or you're righteous because of the religion that you're a part of. It's works righteousness. It's taught by the Pharisees, by a compromised religion. But Zachariah and Elizabeth were not righteous according to those that system. Luke writes, they were righteous in the eyes of God. Meaning, they were justified. They were saved. They were in right standing with God. In other words, they were Christians. They had entered into a saving relationship with God where their sins had been forgiven and God looked upon them as though they were in complete, utter right standing with Him. And so this raises the important question, well, Brother Brian, how are they righteous? Was it because they kept the law? Absolutely not. Romans chapter 3 tells us that there is none righteous, not even one, that all have sinned. We know that no man, no woman, no one is going to keep the law. You can't do it. It's impossible. So we know that's not the reason why they're righteous. And you say, well, it cannot. I mean, is it, it can't be because of Jesus because Jesus hasn't even been born yet. I mean, how did the. I mean, it, if it's not keeping the law and it's not the traditions and the rituals, you know, the sacrifices, right? The Old Testament. We, we think that's why these people were saved because they worked, they did the works, but it, that's not it. And if Jesus hasn't been born, then we wonder, well, how could they be righteous? Brothers and sisters, it has always been faith in Jesus Christ. The people in the Old Testament were saved in the same way that you are saved today. Did you know that? They weren't saved because they slaughtered a goat, a lamb. It was an expression of their faith in the God that had called them. They were saved, brothers and sisters, the same way we are. Galatians 3, eight. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was in right standing with God. Why? Because he believed. So therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.11. Now that no one is justified by the law before, God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. Or Romans one seventeen. For, it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Zechariah and Elizabeth were men was a man and woman who were righteous because they had faith in the word of God. What word? The one that God had given them 400 years ago. The one that God had given Adam and Eve at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. That, a, that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. All these years, they've been, their people have been waiting and believing. They're, they were to be trusting in that word. So 400 years have went by, and Zachariah and Elizabeth are saying, we know that God spoke and said a Messiah is to come. Their faith was in that Messiah. And so because their faith was in that Messiah, God credited to them righteousness that comes through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, the Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward into the future. I know that a Savior is going to come. You and I are saved by looking back. I know a Savior is going to come and His name is Jesus Christ. FBC, no matter what day it is, no matter what time it is, whether it is the worst of times, whether it is the best of times, you need to know this. Salvation has always been the same. You must recognize your sinfulness. You must recognize your inability to save yourself. And you must trust in the revealed Word of God that God had spoken and said that you were only made right with me through the sacrifice of a lamb, and his name was Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints believed in that. They looked to that, and you and I have to look to that. And so let me plead with you today to stop trying to save yourselves by your works Stop thinking your good deeds and your church attendance and your tithes and whatever else you think that you do that is so good and so amazing that you and I deserve some type of credit from God. Stop thinking that that is going to save you. Because you will be sorely lacking on the day of judgment. Because God will take all of those things that you have done, all of the tithes that you have given, All of the service that you have given to him, all of the sweet, nice things you, all of those works, all of those deeds, and when he looks at them, he will find them to be filthy rags. And you say, How can I be saved? But that he look upon the righteousness of Christ that has been given to you and credited to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize our sin. We must be broken over our sin. We must call out to God to forgive us of our sins. And we must call out believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that He and He alone, His righteousness alone, can save me. Well, I would plead for you to do that. I would plead for you to do that this morning. But I would also encourage the believer this morning to make sure that this is the message that you proclaim. You see, their religion was compromised because they got, they got salvation wrong. The Pharisees had made it into, do all these things that we tell you to do. Brothers and sisters, we sometimes do the same thing. And so therefore, no matter whether it's the best of times or the worst of times, we must encourage people, we must make sure that our message is to encourage them to place their trust in Christ and repent of their sins and turn from the wicked ways. No matter the times that we live in, salvation has always come through Christ alone, by faith alone. But secondly, notice verse 6 again. We see a testimony of saving faith. As I said, it could be your testimony this morning, but notice now the testimony of daily obedience. This as well can be our testimony. For notice he says that they were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Notice that this came after the righteousness. Notice that Luke does this on purpose. They were righteous, and then we see they're doing all these things for the Lord. Now, blameless does not mean perfect or sinless. It means a life free from the sinful habits or behaviors that impede our testimony. Both Zachariah and Elizabeth were imperfect. They were a people of integrity. Um, they were imperfect, but let me say this and put the but in. But they were people of integrity and moral excellence. Their their behavior morally was pretty good. Notice that. He says they were obediently following the commands of God. Now this indicates that this is a present tense. They're, they're doing this daily, doing this presently every day. But it describes not just individual moments and stuff. Again, all of us have sinned. We can put our finger on all our sin. We, we know we've sinned. This is, the, in, this is basically a general walk. This is basically the general direction of their walk. If you were to go back to Psalms chapter 1... Where we we saw it this past weekend on Wednesday nights, that there is a contrast between the, the wicked, the way of the wicked, and the way of the righteous. There are those who walk in the way of the wicked; they do they're immoral, they do all these things. But the but the righteous, the way of the of the righteous is you know good moral behavior, that type of thing, following the commands of God. Their general direction was in the path of the righteous. They were not wicked people. They their faith was manifesting itself, expressing through their actions, through their words, through their thoughts through their commitments and things, through their decisions, moral excellence and delight in God. I love what Charles Spurgeon said concerning them. He says, there have been some good people who have lived in very bad times. Never was there a worse reign than that of Herod. And seldom or never a better man and woman than Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then he follows it up with this. Spurgeon says, let no man excuse himself for sinning because of the times in which he lives. Let me say it again. Let no man excuse himself for sinning because of the times in which he lives. FBC, I understand that the world around us is bad. I understand that people do sinful things. And I understand that for a moment the wicked may seem to prosper. But just because the world around you is wicked and bad and because the world around you does these things, that doesn't give us a reason to join them, to follow them, to act like they. We are not to fight fire with fire. They may protest and have fires and burn cities down. We don't do that. They may get their, 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 uh, their wealth and their things. They put the food on their table by lying, cheating, and stealing. You don't get to do that. They may be able to speak of things and and tolerate things, you know, in this world. You don't get to do that. A testimony that that testifies of the glory of God and the hope of a world to come and the worth of Christ is one of daily obedience to the commands of God. The people of God are to live blamelessly before a wicked world. Daily seeking moral excellence within our own culture by following all the commandments and the requirements of God. And here's the thing: you need to know this. Here's what's going to happen: by doing this, you're not going to end up on Fox News as an example on how to live. Your how they, everybody should live. You're not going to end up as the example. You're going to be a lot like Zachariah and Elizabeth, and nobody's going to know your name. But God will. And he and His favor will shine upon you. Daily obedience, just doing what is right. Living morally before God. Pure lives. And so I've just written a few things down here to give you an example. As brothers and sisters, we worship no other gods. No amen on that one? We worship no other gods. And sadly, what we are finding is is we are seeing people who worship government. What we're finding is is that we're seeing that every other God in the world and every other religion in the world is positively embraced other than Christianity. And so we, we worship no other God. We, we are a part of no other religion. We, we worship no worldly things. Not even ourselves. We daily worship God and God alone that is the first commandment we maintain faithful adherence to the scriptures i would argue that that is even the second commandment the issue of no idols before god that we do as god tells us to do that, that we're not out we're not out going past his word and creating things. brothers and sisters we maintain faithful adherence to the scriptures and to who god is we don't try to go and, and become some type of public um, you know publicity for god to help his his you know his um, promoting Him in a better light or something because people don't like the Bible. No, we are faithful. We faithfully adhere to what the Scriptures say about God. We mean faithful adherence to Scriptures and not mixing worldly philosophies into our religion, into the Scriptures. We don't embrace these things. That's what the golden calf was all about. We uphold the command to worship God individually and corporately. I don't know if you know this, but God has commanded us to worship. He has commanded you to worship God individually, in your home, but also as a church, corporately. We don't join and accept false religions. We just don't. We we don't look at those who go and do Buddha and say, well, that's okay, you do as you do. Look, you can't force them. I'm not saying that, that we're to be tyrants ourselves. But we do not preach that those types of lifestyles and those types of ways are okay and that it's all loving and God is happy. Nor do we join and practice or embrace, accept, unbiblical lifestyles concerning marriage. Marriage is between one man and one woman. We do not embrace, accept, or tolerate homosexuality, transgenderism, unbiblical views of sex. We, 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 don't, we don't accept any... We don't, brothers and sisters... And I'm telling you that it is happening within the the evangelical world that we are no longer daily obeying the Lord and the commands of God in these areas. We don't murder. We don't respond in violence when we don't get our way. We don't sit back and not respond in violence, but we hate them within our heart. We don't hate the politicians that don't do the things that we do. We don't hate those who are on the other side of us. Nor do we join in stealing from others, coveting, or being greedy, and so forth. If we see this list can go on and on, but the question that you must ask yourself is this. Does your testimony testify of daily obedience? I didn't ask you, did your testimony, is it a testimony that people can see your daily obedience? Because people didn't see Zechariah and Elizabeth's obedience. Not everybody. And so there's this idea that nobody sees me I can do or think and act behind closed doors any way that I want. That's not what I'm asking you. Do you wake up daily with a testimony that looks up to heaven and says, God, today I want to obey every command that you have given me and live a life that is pure and holy and one that I can be proud of. Because you, God, are proud. Brothers and sisters, if you are not living that kind of life, if you are not striving daily, again, to be blameless, not sinless, but blameless before God. Then, brothers and sisters, you need a new testimony. You need a new testimony. You need to repent. And you need to know what God commands and then you need to seek the Lord to give you the strength and the power to live that testimony that he's called you to live in this time. I don't know if you know this, but what we need today is more men and women who just obey the commands of God. I don't need new policies. I don't need new politicians. I don't need, I don't, we don't need all of this stuff. Everybody says we need, that we need to do this. We've got to take back our schools and we've got to take back this. I just need the people of God to just obey the commands of God. And brothers and sisters, all those other things will fall into place. Just obey the commands of God. If this is not your testimony, I pray that you make it your testimony, that you seek Him. But thirdly, I would would say, notice the testimony of religious service. Notice, again, for time's sake, just notice there verses 8 through 10. We see that, that he is serving, Zechariah is serving there within the, the temple. Now, Zechariah was a priest, meaning that he was of the tribe of Levi and a descendant of Aaron. and He was chosen by God. We see the lot is cast and to go and to burn incense. This was a very, no, very noble task. This was a very highly regarded task. And you need to know something, and we'll speak more on this next week, but just for today to see the providence and sovereignty of God here, you see that there's actually around 20,000 priests at this time. Not a fraction of them would get to do what Zechariah is getting to do. It it all had to work out, but they would cast lots and different things. It's only two weeks out of the year, I think, that they get to do this. He is chosen for this by God to go in. And so the odds of someone being chosen is astronomical, which, again, showcases the providence of God. And so while he's in there serving the Lord with these special duties, the rest of them are outside praying. Now, I find Zachariah's religious service very admirable. Why? Because here you have a man who is up in years, who has desired children, who cannot, cannot have children. If you know anyone who has, who has not been able to, to, to have children of their own, you know that this weighs upon them. And so this would have been hard for them, especially the way that their society viewed children as blessings from the lord and so not only that he has not heard he his people have not heard from god in 400 years they're they're wondering god where are you tyrants are ruling his own religion that he his own religion his own people that he serves under his bosses the people over him are compromised evil and wicked and the very thing that he loves they have twisted and, they, and then you know the anguish that he and the people experience. You see, all of this could have led him to despair. To cause him to turn his back on the religious service to God and say, God, what's the use? What's the point? Why do I burn this incense? Why do we do any of this? We haven't heard from you in 400 years. You haven't blessed me. I don't have a child. My own people, the very people that I have to serve under are wicked people. He could have turned his back and said, God, I'm not serving you. And yet what we find here is is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were not only following the commands of God, but they were committed to serving God where God had placed them. Friends, the grandest testimonies are not always the ones where people are running out to fight the giants and slay the lions. We see those testimonies, but that is a rare testimony. In the darkest days of society, it is the testimony of consistent, never-ending, never-giving-up service to God in the local church that shines the brightest. It is the testimony of 39 years of serving over and over and over, 50 years over and over and over, 60 years over, 100 years And some days waking up going, God, I don't even know if what I'm doing matters. But you know God spoke 400 years ago. And so you have faith and you continue to serve today. Many of you want to take the grandstands of faith that will make national news. And yet in the darkest days of Israel, God's favor fell not on those who, on the national news level. In the darkest days of Israel, God's favor, God's light shone brightly upon a priest and his wife. God chose them. And brothers and sisters, I don't know if you know this or not, but everything that takes place within this church is important to God. Just as Zachariah's duties at the temple were important, everything that we do here as a church, as a ministry that we do, is important to God. And God has placed you in this church the same way that He chose Zechariah. Because we know Proverbs sixteen thirty three, the lot is cast into the lap, but it is the very decision every decision is from the Lord. There is no chance that you are a member of this church. There are no chances. The lot has been cast, and it is God's decision that you would be here. And God has called you to serve Him. But Brian, I haven't... God has called you to serve Him. But what about the? God has called you to serve. But what about the tyrant? God has called you to serve. Well, then, then let's go. Let's go to Washington, D.C. and serve. No. Well, let's go to Canada and, and let's... for let's, No. God has called you to serve in the local church of First Baptist Church of Jonesboro. And whether you believe it or not, God will look at you with favor and delight. You say, but Brother Brian, there are some things that are just more important. There, there are things out there that are just more important than what we just do in here. I've got a career. I've got a job. I, 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 you know, my kids are in school. I, I've got all of these really important things that are outside the church that I, that I need to be doing And yet God hasn't commanded you to do any of those things in the way that he's commanded you to church. Let me give you two things. Know this, number one, that God has always met people in the lowly places of service. He met them in the fields. He met them in the deserts, in the wilderness, and in the caves. If you're one this morning who say, I really want to meet with God, Brian, I want to be close to God. I want to meet with God. Brothers and sisters, you ain't got to go to D.C. Brian, I really want to do something. That, I really want to do something where I'm with God. You don't have to go to D.C. You've got a church. You've got a local church that God has given you to serve in. But secondly, I would say this. There is no other service in all of the world. There's no profession. There's no other career that will transcend this world than the work of a local church. This is the beauty of someone serving 39 years in the local church. You may not know exactly all the lives that you have touched, but God does. And it may not be until heaven that you see it all, but the work in the local church, brothers and sisters, will transcend even into heaven. It will have a ripple effect. I'm sorry, but all of the wealth that you gain here, all of the things that you do here on this earth, all these worldly things that we're so involved and invested in, they're done when you die. They're done for the man or woman who serves God. That work will, it will transcend even into the gates of heaven. And so if you want a testimony that shines bright in the darkest of days, you serve in your local church. Young, old, whoever it is. God wants men and women who are willing to put forth the effort, who are going to intentionally put forth effort to serve him where he has placed them. And I know that will not get, a, get you a grandstanding applause from the, from the world. But from what I witnessed this morning, 39 years will get you an applause from the people that mean the most to you. It'll mean a lot to us. And it means a lot to God. FBC needs to be, we need servants. We need people who, are te- who will be a testimony of service in this church no matter your age. Why did Zachariah and Elizabeth not give up? Why did they serve? Why did they obey? And why did they believe? And the answer is because 400 years ago, God made a promise. He made a promise to send a Savior. And they believed him. They said, God, you're worthy. They said, God, you are worthy of that. And we believed that promise. Their hope was in that promise. And so the people of God served. Brothers and sisters, God made a promise 2,000 years ago. God gave a command 2,000 years ago. But he gave us a promise that one day he would return and he would take us to himself. Whether we die or whether he comes back, he made a promise that there is a world that awaits us that is better than this world. I know the times don't look good. But I know that the times in that that world are going to be awesome. There is a world that awaits us. And so how do I proclaim to this world that needs that world, that needs to get into that world, how do I proclaim to them of the hope I have in the world to come and that the God of this world is worthy to be worshipped? I live in the best or worst of times by believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. I obey him daily. I obey him daily, even when it's hard. Even when the world itself is against me. I obey him daily. And thirdly, I serve. I serve in the local church until either I go to him or he comes to me. And through that testimony, through that three aspect of testimony, brothers, and sisters, you are proclaiming to this world the hope of Jesus Christ that is in you. And in your heart. May that be your testimony FBC. Because God showed favor to the man and woman. And Luke who had that testimony. Let's pray.